from KQED. Welcome again to the Forum Program. This morning, I'm Michael Krasny. President Trump announced on Saturday that he was nominating Federal Appeals Court Judge Amy Coney Barrett to the U.S. Supreme Court. The conservative jurist is known for her skepticism of the Affordable Care Act, abortion rights, and deference to pre-existing legal precedents. And one day before the first presidential debate, we'll look at what her nomination could mean for the November election. We'll also discuss the political implications of Sunday's revelations by the New York Times that the president paid just $750 in federal taxes in 2016 and 2017, and nothing in 10 of the past 15 years. And joining us is Jacqueline Thompson, reporter with the National Law Journal. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Glad to have you. Also glad to have Bruce Kane, professor of political science and director of the Bill Lane Center for the American West at Stanford. Welcome, Bruce Kane. Thank you. Good to have you both aboard here. And Bruce, let me begin with you. I don't know that we can necessarily predict the effect on these two major stories on the electorate at this point, but let's talk about the taxes and how that impinges and uh, what kind of effect it has. It certainly, well, Douglas Brinkley, for example, said uh, it proves uh, irrefutably, historian Douglas Brinkley, that the president is a con man. That may be a bit hyperbolic to some, but uh, from the other side, we're hearing President Trump saying it's fake news. What's the effect and impact of this in your judgment? In my judgment, it's not going to affect 90% of the electorate. At this point, the lines are drawn pretty clearly in terms of uh, the most of the people who are either Democratic or Republican or what we call leaners in the independent category. So we're really talking about that sliver of the electorate the uh, basically the voters that are swing voters in the swing states. That's what matters. I mean, yes, it does matter that if uh, the Democrats can get a larger popular vote, it, it strengthens their claim about the illegitimacy of this presidency. But the reality is that it's an electoral college and the electoral college comes down to the swing voters in the swing states. That's a very tiny group of people. And the question is, do they get so offended by the fact that he paid $750 twice, uh, or are what they really paying attention to are COVID and the, the economy and other issues. And I think it's hard to say at this point, we're going to have to see how the polling shows up, but I'm not, I'm not convinced we've been going after his business credentials, you know, for four years. And I don't think that's the essence of what his appeal is. His appeal is not that he's really an honest person or anything. It's just that he can channel the anger and resentment that some people feel in this country. Well, he said, in fact, uh, in 2016, when he was uh, told, uh, faced with the fact that he paid no taxes, yeah, that's because I'm smarter. But yeah. this is uh, a $72.9 million tax refund that's been under audit. No tax, taxes paid 11 of 18 years and hundreds of millions in loans coming due. Uh, uh, $70,000 for hairstyling when he was a TV star, as he would put it, uh, more money from foreign sources and U.S. interest groups. People just ignore these kind of facts and you know blow them away because he's our guy and he's bad for the liberals. Yeah, I mean, I think the way that I would put it if I were uh, you know consulting them, uh, the Democratic Party, is really what it shows. That it is true that it shows all the things you're talking about, but the potential for corruption in the second term is enormous because if in fact all these uh, debts are coming due and if in fact he's in this very fragile position, everything that we saw in terms of his leveraging 
his uh, presidential position in order to enhance his businesses, it's just going to quadruple. I mean, he's got he's he he needs to wring as much money as he can out of this situation. So I would play up the corruption part of it that he's going to be spending his second term playing golf and basically trying to get his debts paid off. Well, Jacqueline Thompson, what about the legal side of this? Uh, corruption does seem to be hovering over it in many people's minds, uh, and there's been a lot of talk about what can be done to President Trump once he's out of the presidential position that he's in and doesn't have any immunity to cover him. But what's your thoughts? Sure. Yeah. You know, these tax returns are something that have been highly sought after by investigators in the House in New York. Uh, both the Manhattan DA and the New York Attorney General's office are seeking these kinds of financial records from Trump and his private businesses. So the fact that they're now being publicly reported it, you know, it really shows exactly what they're going after. And they can be more specific when they're going through court fights, when they're going through other procedures and trying to get these records in order to build up their investigations. Uh, you know, the investigators in New York have indicated that they could be opening up a fraud investigation into the Trump organization. And with the returns now being publicly reported, you know, it might make it a bit more easier for them to get them in court. Uh, you can say, you know, these have already been publicly disclosed. The president says that it's fake news. We need the returns ourselves in order to, you know, corroborate these reports and figure out whether or not this is something that's actually happening. And sure, the guidance right now is that you can't bring an indictment against a sitting president. But say if Trump loses in November, they're able to get the returns. They're able to prove some sort of fraud that way you know, that is what really the danger is for the president lying in that. And we'd like to hear from you about this. We're also going to talk about the nomination of Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court, uh, talking with Jacqueline Thompson and Bruce Kane. And if you have some thoughts, we'd like to hear what they are. Or if you have some questions, please feel free to join us. What do you think of the Trump tax return revelations? You can give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That number again for your calls 866-733-6786 or get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email us, forum at kqed.org. A listener writes, it's no wonder Donald Trump wanted to keep his tax return secret. How does this supposed military leader justify paying nothing in support of the people in uniform he's supposed to lead? Well, those arguments will certainly probably come out Tuesday night in the debate, those kind of arguments. But I'm wondering uh, what your thoughts are, Bruce Kane, on arguments which will come out with the nomination of Amy Coney Barrett, who... By most standards, a very impressive woman uh, in terms of, uh, well, her personal poise and her uh, legal judgments uh, that many people disagree with, but nevertheless see her as kind of an originalist textualist. And she was indeed a clerk for uh, Anton Scalia, and she follows that tradition, uh, champion of uh, social conservatism. But you got most Americans who are, uh, well, certainly in favor of reproductive rights. How does this play out in this election? I think... The first way it plays out is it's going to mobilize the base of both the Democratic and the Republican Party. I mean, there's a huge gender difference uh, emerging between uh, men and white men and, and white women. And uh, so this is going to just mobilize them further. So there's I don't think you'll see huge differences in the preferences, but it'll show up in terms of how people mobilize to vote, the ability to raise money, et cetera. So I think the abortion side, uh, it serves as a kind of mobilizing agent for both sides. Um, but I think the other aspects are more concerning to me, which is 
where she's going to be in being the referee on election disputes or, or uh, you know, to what degree does uh, he, she believe that the executive has immunity from investigations on her uh, various, um, or on his, uh, you know, attempts to cover things up? Will he try to put pressure on the IRS? I mean, that's the part as a political scientist who's been studying politics for 50 years professionally, almost 50 years anyway, I, I never have been at a point, even under Nixon, where I'm more concerned about democratic processes and the erosion of our norms and our erosions of, uh, of our ability to check a president who wants to exploit it uh, to give himself immunity. So that's the part of it that I hope they get into. I think they should stay away from the religious divide and, and because what you see is that uh, you know the the Democratic Party is a very secular party, and you have to be careful about that. If you if you're not if you start going after the you know the group that she belongs to, the people of uh, I forget what it's called, but you know if you go after that as being clandestine and and uh, possibly nefarious, I, I think that's a dangerous way to go. I think I would stay away from that. They're called uh, the people of praise, by the way. People and, of praise, yeah, thank you. And uh, thank you. I was yeah. just going to say, Senator Feinstein learned that that's a real mind trap when she talked about dogma living within her. She was attacked at a Senator right. Feinstein here in California, attacked as being anti-Catholic. Uh, and uh, certainly Bruce Cain's concerns uh, from the political side are real, uh, Jacqueline Thompson, but there are also concerns along uh, different lines about uh, about guns, about health care, about labor across the board, because her record, although she's only been three years on the appellate court, but her record is that of uh, a strong originalist, a strong textualist and a strong conservative. Absolutely. Like you mentioned, she clerked for Antonin Scalia on the Supreme Court. And frankly, he was basically the center point of uh, the ceremony over the weekend where she where she was announced as a nominee. She mentioned, you know, members of the Scalia family are here. His legal theory is my legal theory. And, you know, that's a real upside for conservatives because they've frankly been disappointed in the Supreme Court over the past term. They look at different cases where they got rulings that they thought they weren't going to get. Uh, they got, they lost in the DACA case. They lost in the um, protections for LGBTQ plus people in the workplace. They had major conservative defections on the president's, uh, President Trump's tax returns fights. And, it, you know, by her saying, I am basically Antonin Scalia 2.0, you know, that's a real reassurance for conservatives. But at the same time, it's a real danger for liberals who go, do we really want another Antonin Scalia on this court? What exactly is that going to look like in the future? Right now, you have John Roberts as the swing vote, quote unquote, on the court, but you know, does that mean that Kavanaugh or Gorsuch is now going to be the swing vote? And you know, what does that mean for the future of civil rights and other issues along those lines that she could ultimately rule against? Well, again, Bruce Kane, the majority of Americans believe the winner of the next presidential election should not uh, confirm the seat, and yet uh, the fact is that that's probably likely to happen. I think Dick Durbin, uh, Senator of Illinois, said maybe we could hold this up for one day, but it's a losing cause. Uh, and that's principally, I suppose, the wisdom here because the Republicans control the Senate and they control the Judiciary Committee, so they can and probably will ramrod it through, won't they? That's right. I, I think so. I mean, it, it, it is possible, I suppose, but I, I see it as increasingly unlikely that uh, some of the people in the competitive seats will start to uh, waver a bit. 
uh, and push not so much. Uh, they, they would like to have the vote after the election, I suspect, you know, keep it keep so it's not on the record. But that's about the only hope. I, I think with the president pushing very hard, that's politically going to be hard. I think there's going to be a lot of pressure on the Republican Party to get this done, because if they do lose the presidency and they lose the Senate, that's their last shot. So it's either do it now or, you know, not do it at all. So I, I think they will uh, push to move this forward. And, you know, I, I really want to say, Michael, I mean, this is that we have a whole bunch of institutions that are frustrating the majority will right now. We got the Supreme Court, we got the Senate, we've got the Electoral College, we've got uh, gerrymandering in Republican states, uh, we've got voter ID laws. This is not going to, this isn't going to, the strategy of the Republican Party is eventually going to burst. And it'll burst at some point. And then even the fact that the court is uh, dominated by the Republicans. That is a fragile thing because the Democrats, if they get control of all three branches, if you if you suppress the majority long enough, they will increase that court, and then you open up a, another can of worms uh, down the road. So I, you know, you you, you could de definitely see that this is going to cause more constitutional crises because we're you know people are when they get into power they're going to change the composition of the court by enlarging it so I, I see this at a very dangerous point for america right now although vice president biden said he's not in favor of enlarging the court uh, though i suppose he could shift on that position but that at least has been his position yeah. and i'd like to hear what your position is on this what do you think of the tax trump revelations and the nomination of amy cone barrett uh, coney barrett if you uh, have some thoughts, we'd like to hear what they are. If you have some questions for our guests, we're talking to Jacqueline Thompson, reporter for the National Law Journal, and Bruce Kane, professor of political science and director of the Bill Lane Center for the American West at Stanford. Please feel free to be a part of the program and join the conversation by giving us a call now at our toll-free number, 866-733-6786. Again, join us at 866-733-6786, and you can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email any questions or comments you might have to forum at kqed.org. Let me read some comments that are coming in. Robert writes, every time the Supreme Court is mentioned, please include discussion of the historic hypocrisy by Senate Republicans. This context is critical. We have not moved on. I'm assuming that's uh, Merrick Garland that Robert is talking about here, but that doesn't really uh, play into this, I don't think. Does it, Jacqueline Thompson? You know, they're definitely not hitting Republicans as hard on that as they could be, but I think it's because it's just proven to not be as effective as it could be. You know, when it comes to conservatives and the court, it is a huge priority for them and is a traditional Republican priority, whereas it's only become more recent among liberals to be energizing the court in the future of the judiciary. The fact of the matter is, is that, it, you know, creating a conservative majority on the Supreme Court that could last for decades and whose rulings will have massive implications you know, that's a huge priority. And, you know, if that takes a little bit of hypocrisy, I think most Republicans are going to be fine with it at the end of the day. They're going, okay, this is what we were elected into office to do. And I think it really just underscores how the the role of getting judges onto courts in general is a political process, even if the judiciary is not a political branch per se. So, you know, that just all plays a huge role there. And when you bring Merrick Garland up, sure, it brings back resentment, it brings back anger, but, you know, it, it won't change the ultimate outcome at the end of the day. Let me bring a caller on with us. Arlinda joins us. Arlinda, welcome. You're on the air. Hi, 
I'd like to know from your legal experts there how someone can take, according to the New York Times, seventy-five thousand dollars for a hair for a, on a year for a hair for haircuts, and um, over a hundred thousand dollars for linens for a personal home. Those are just some examples um, as 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 tax write-offs, business deductions. How is that possible? This is according to what I've read in the New York Times articles. Yeah, the New York Times article does reveal, as you say, Arlinda, $75,000 for hairstyling, but also uh, uh, the Springs Estate you alluded to. It's over 200 acres in Westchester County as a business expense. Uh, let me go to you, Jacqueline Thompson. Yeah, you know, I'm not a tax expert, but from what I understand, there have been rulings previously in tax court that say things along the lines of you can't things like haircuts and hairstylings as a personal tax write-off. Now, you know, it, maybe he can in this instance. We still haven't seen the documents themselves, which does, you know, add another twist into this. But, you know, that estate that you reference as well, that's one that's come under scrutiny from the New York Attorney General's office and is currently the subject of an investigation there as well. So, you know, the fact that people are starting to hone in on these different properties and the fact that it was revealed in the New York times investigation about, you know, the way that property is being claimed, you know, I think that will only add fuel to investigators fire there and they'll be able to, you know, go into more detail and trying to get, gain access to information about what exactly happened there. And, you know, the tax code is very technical. There are a lot of different ways that people can claim different things in order to get certain write-offs. But, you know, at the end of the day, if they're able to get the information that they need in order to prove that this is right or wrong, you know, then that is where the consequences may start to materialize. There are a lot of things in that report, though. I mean, 20% unexplained consulting fees and more money, as I said earlier, from foreign sources uh, than... Uh... <laughs> I don't know about the Russian ties that uh, at this point has not been made apparent, but there's something maybe in there. A quick question for you, Bruce, from a listener named Carlos. Uh, he wants to know when we st uh, we need to, he says we need to stop thinking one story will or should make a dramatic difference. The 2016 election came down to a very small number of voters and this one will, too. That was kind of what you were intimating, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, and that's right. It, it, you've got a, a group of voters that are the swing voters in these swing states a small sliver of the electorate and what we know about them uh, as a class of voters is that they don't pay as much attention to the news uh, and so uh, around the election time things start to pick up they get a little more interested and so yes what what happens in the last 30 to 40 days can make a difference to just enough voters to swing the outcome well, we'll continue to pay attention to the news, uh, talking about President Trump's taxes revealed by the New York Times and also talking about the nomination of Amy Coney Barrett. This is Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. This is Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. We're talking to Jacqueline Thompson, reporter for the National Law Journal, and Bruce Kane, who is professor of political science and director of the Bill Lane Center for the American West at Stanford. Let's bring another caller on here. Steve, join us. You're on the air. Hi, um, I'm just kind of curious. Um, I haven't heard anything about this, but if we, if the Democrats did actually take back the White House and the House and Senate, has there been any any scuttlebutt, anything about total campaign finance reform? Seems like that'd be the root fix for all of this. You see anything on that horizon, Bruce Kane? What if uh, Amy Barrett becomes a justice? I mean. The real obstacle to that is the court. 
the court has interpreted um, campaign finance as a First Amendment protected right and puts very strict limits on the types of uh, limitations you can put on campaign spending. And that's led to this proliferation of independent expenditure committees that have some of which, including the C4s, don't even have to disclose. So the world that we're in is a world that was delivered to us by largely conservatives on the court. And uh, this is only going to make it harder to change that. And even Jeff, if we expand the court. Uh, I'm sorry. Did you, Steve, were you saying something else? Go ahead. Yeah, I just wondering. So make, that makes a stronger argument for expanding the court. Yes, you're right. I, again, that's why I keep coming back to this. Yes, Biden has, I think, prudently said that's not what his intent is. But I'm just uh, the, the accumulation of majority frustration will eventually and I don't know when, but will eventually lead to uh, some of these kinds of moves. Because this is not what we call can't... a minoritarian government. Uh... Yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, and, you know, that that's something you've seen in Rhodesia and South America, uh, South Africa in earlier times, but it just isn't going to work. I mean, we had a one person, one vote Supreme Court decision that got rid of the um, essentially the, the equivalent of a Senate uh, at the state level. But what the court said in that decision is that they can't change the Constitution, that that can only be changed in mandated ways by going through both the Congress and through the states and looking for supermajoritarian votes. So it's very hard to change the Constitution, but we have all these institutions that are left over from the 18th century that have uh, you know, put us in this weird situation right now where a small number of people, a smaller number of people control the country in many different ways through these institutions. And I think that frustration is going to boil over if we have the third election in this millennia that uh, it, you know, goes to uh, the, the person who got fewer votes <laughs> and you combine all these other things, that's just not a stable situation for a democracy. Brings up another point, and let me go to you on this, Jacqueline Thompson, uh, that I've been thinking about and mulling over. During the confirmation hearings, uh, Amy Coney Barrett uh, was asked about, I mentioned, for example, Senator Feinstein talked about dogma with her view and what she has expressed as a jurist uh, as far as abortion and Roe v. Wade. Uh, and most, uh, I think, reasonable people say reasonably that faith should not be a part of a discussion or not interfere with the process. Uh, and most would, I think, strongly stand behind that. Um, and certainly all the clerks who worked with her, um, with Justice Scalia and everybody who knows her, including Noah Feldman, who was part of the impeachment process uh, on the side of impeachment, have said really very glowing things about her. She obviously is a brilliant and very impressive woman. But you get into this question about faith. It's a faith that believes in patriarchy and believes in, frankly, patriarchal hegemony. Um, so is that really irrelevant to the legal process, uh, especially when they talk about obedience of, of wives to their husbands and of women to men? I think it becomes relevant when we start to see it influence her jurisprudence and her legal opinions and her legal theories. Uh, you know, she hasn't directly invoked her faith in, you know, what she's written on the court and how she's approached her rulings in that way. But, you know, if there is evidence of that being the case, you know, then I think it is pretty much a fair question. Uh, look, I'm a Catholic. She's a Catholic. 
but she belongs to this group that's now getting so much scrutiny. At the same time, you have Democrats who are so afraid of saying anything that could be construed as being anti-feminist or anything else along those lines and or being anti-Catholic even, even though there are several uh, Supreme Court justices who are Catholic and the party's nominee for the election is also Catholic. If so, she is uh, indeed confirmed, uh, there will be six Catholics on the Supreme Court. Yes. So, you know, it, it just points to the fact that you have so many instances where you see Republicans that are so able to take this narrative and push it forward. And Democrats are so afraid of that backlash that they might not be willing to touch it at all, even if it is, you know, relevant to the way that she will behave on the bench. And once again, I think that it becomes relevant when it gets hold into her legal theories and the way in which she rules. Well, let me bring another caller on. Rod joins us next. Rod, welcome. You're on the air. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, I think some of the folks are missing the point on Trump's tax returns. Uh, I think his uh, $70,000 for haircuts is uh, interesting. But the important part is this. If his tax returns show that he lied on loan applications, then he's committed a number of felonies, both in New York State and federally. Uh, that's where the tax returns can really cause the whole thing to become unraveled. Thanks, well, th thanks for that thought, Rod. In fact, uh, the New York court has pretty much been investigating along those lines, hasn't it, Bruce Kane? Yeah, I mean, uh, there are two separate issues here. One is uh, whether, you know, how far any kind of legal prosecution can go forward uh, given his, uh, the, he's got the Justice Department uh, trying to give him immunity in various ways, given that he's got control over the IRS. I mean, there's that. Uh, and, you know, whether people are going to, I mean, the main thing is people have to perceive this as, uh, as corruption. But if they don't, uh, you know, he's going to be able to say, no, there's just more people going after me. These are normal practices. I think the debate's going to be very interesting because this issue is going to come up and let's see how he defends himself. If it's, hey, I was just doing what I could, you know, um, if, but if it's on the other hand, no, this is only a partial picture and you, you got to wait for the audit, that may be enough of an excuse for people to look the other way. So I don't know how it's going to play out, but it definitely bothers me. Well, if you'd like to join us and let us know what's bothering you, or if you have questions or comments, our toll-free number again is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Or get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. Or email any questions you may have, forum at kqed.org. Here's a listener who writes, once again, it's the press that is able to get access to the documents that the House and Senate used to be able to get through their oversight duties. But with McConnell's total abdication of the Senate's independence and Barr challenging any attempts of the House to get documents, the press is the only one stopping us from becoming a completely tyrannical country. Some other people weighing in here. Neil says the Democrats should boycott the hearings and concentrate on winning the elections. That's the way to show that the entire process is illegitimate. And Elaine writes, wasn't it the Dems who invoked the nuclear option? It seems that one rule change has had a dramatic effect on polarizing the Senate. What's the prognosis for that rule? You want to comment on that, Jacqueline? Yeah, you know, it was Harry Breed who invoked the nuclear option for Supreme yes, it Court was. <laughs> And, it, you know, the fact of the matter is that whenever you're the majority party, you'll take an action that will benefit you in that moment. 
but it may come back to bite you later on down the line. And that is what we are seeing right now. Uh, you know, there's now been a lot of conversation about well, how the rules could change if Democrats win back the Senate, which, you know, is an if. And, you know, do they take on the filibuster? How do they start handling nominations moving forward? And, you know, every party, like I mentioned, when they're in control, they're going to take actions that will benefit themselves. And if they don't, you know, consider the long-term effects, either the same thing can be said for packing the court. If Democrats in control decide that they want to expand the number of seats on the Supreme Court, nothing would stop a Republican-controlled Senate and administration from doing the same thing four years later on. So, you know, there's a number of tactics they could consider, but, you know, I really think that we have to see how this nomination process plays out with Amy Coney Barrett and the way that Senate Democrats address it then. Well, I think one thing that is predictable if the Democrats win is they will probably move toward having uh, D.C. and Puerto Rico and the U.S. Virgin Islands turn into states. But what about uh, predictability where abortion and Roe v. Wade is concerned? Uh, I'd like to go to you on that, Bruce Kane. Uh, I don't necessarily ask you to go into a crystal ball here, but uh, we have comments by uh, Amy Coney Barrett, uh, and she is sort of the... Uh, the anti-RBG here, they're already calling her AC, the notorious ACB. Um, she, but comments that suggest that she believes in precedent and she doesn't want to uh, necessarily do away with Roe v. Wade, but just have it chipped away. In fact, it was Scalia who said there's nothing in the Constitution about abortion. Yeah, I, I think that's a big, a big deal, Michael. I mean, if she really is uh, prepared and the, and the court is prepared to overturn Roe v. Wade, that's going to be huge. <laughs> uh, and, but I, I, and you're right, I've, I've read too, and I, this is where I think we all have to pay attention to what she says in the hearings. And that's why I would prefer the Democrats to be there and ask these questions, because I think it matters quite a bit. If she's going to chip away, that is n not a good thing for people who believe in abortion rights, but it's not nearly as drastic as potentially uh, overturning Roe v. Wade completely. And so I think they got to be there. They got to ask those questions. We got to find out what she says. We have to scrutinize her writings to really understand where she is on this precedent. I mean, she was not, I mean, even though she was looming last time, uh, I think most of us have not really focused very much on uh, her written record, and there is a written record. And I think we got to. I th so I would like to see the Dems do do their due diligence in these hearings. I think that's important for precisely that reason. And the record also includes uh, some strong language uh, about Judge Roberts' uh, decision with respect to pre-existing conditions and the Affordable Care Act, or so-called Obamacare. She uh, apparently, very conspicuously, has been opposed to. Uh, Obamacare or the Affordable Care Act. And uh, we'll hear from some more listeners. I just want to hear, uh, read something uh, from a listener named Michael who says Congress should pass a law requiring all presidential candidates to release their tax returns. Why haven't they? And another listener says if the Supreme Court nominee were really a good human being, as she is being advertised, she would say that her nomination should wait until after the next election. And uh, I want to remind you that this is a fundraising period for KQED Public Radio. And for more information about how to support KQED, simply go to kqed.org. You're listening in forum on KQED Public Radio. We're talking with Jacqueline Ertson uh, and uh, Bruce Kane. And uh, Jacqueline Thompson is with the National Law Journal. Bruce Kane is at Stanford. This is Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. Let me bring another caller on here and let's bring Beth on. Beth, welcome. You're on the air. 
Hi, good morning. Uh, I'm wondering if the New York Attorney General or the New York District Attorney can use the New York Times trove of documents for their various investigations and prosecutions, and I'll take my answer off the air. All right, thank you for the question, Beth. Uh, we'll go to you, Jacqueline Thompson. You can use it, um, but I believe in what I, my understanding is from people that I've been speaking to about this is that unless they get the documents themselves, it'll become harder to, you know, move forward with any sort of indictment or anything else along those lines if they choose to bring those forward. You know, the fact of the matter is the New York Times says it, it's indicated so far that it's not going to publish the returns itself because it needs to protect its sources, which is, you know, a reasonable thing to do as a newspaper. You don't want to be in a situation where you end up with people getting in uh, legal trouble or otherwise, even though they did get legal access to these documents. So, it, but what they can do is use the public reporting in order to further their arguments in federal court to gain access to these records. Uh, you know, the Second Circuit Court of Appeals heard arguments in the Vance case uh, just on Friday. So that case is moving quite quickly after the Supreme Court ruling on over the summer in favor of releasing the information over to that New York grand jury. Uh, you know, if they get another favorable ruling, then they're going to be in a spot where they might, where they'll have the returns themselves and they'll be able to make arguments based off of the New York Times reporting in order to say, you know, this is really why we need these documents. We need these returns in order to corroborate this information and then to move forward on it. And here's Dan joining us next from Mill Valley, uh, excuse me, uh, from Santa Clara. Hi, Dan. You're on the air. Good morning. Uh, I'm not so sure even if they do get this uh, Supreme Court nominee through, that's such a good thing for Republicans' electoral and election prospects for the future. It's the old case of be careful for what you wish for. Thoughts from your guests? Bruce Kane. I completely agree. Uh, I think that in the long term, you know, you're getting to you can you can get caught with these appointments, uh, a legacy of appointments that doesn't keep up with public opinion. And uh, so, uh, you know, it, it definitely is a problem. We've seen it with the Democratic Party got out ahead on court decisions, say on busing. And uh, I remember when I was working with Willie Brown, hearing him talk about what a liability it was for Democrats running back in the 80s to have to uh, you know, run on something they didn't have any control over. So yes, I think it is a long-term liability uh, potentially for uh, the Republican Party, but they've got a lot of other liabilities. They're depending upon a sector of the demography, which is shrinking, i.e. Uh, the white population and particularly white men. So I, you know, but the, it, all things in politics tend to be about the short term. <laughs> the long term <laughs> is always just thrown away. That's a good aphorism about politics I hadn't heard, but you're, I would agree. Uh, let me read a comment from Amy who says, I'm disappointed and horrified to hear your guests say the hypocrisy of Republican senators is not really at play in the Supreme Court nomination. It should absolutely be at play and at the forefront of discussion. There should not be different rules for Republicans and Democrats. You want to comment on that, Bruce? Yeah, I think let's, let's be clear. It's one thing to say, uh, am I, or uh, maybe Jacqueline as well, do we feel that this is hypocrisy? I certainly do. I do think that this is part of the degradation of politics that I worry a lot about. But if I'm being an analyst and I'm telling you, how does it play out? 
I just think that given the hardened partisanship of the current period, 90% of the electorate is going to be unaffected by this hypocrisy. And I think Jacqueline said something similar in terms of you know how many people were going to change their minds about it. So that that's a separate statement than saying, is it a good thing that they are acting hypocritically like that? And back to you, Jacqueline, on something uh, different here, a listener raising a question about Ivanka. I'd like to hear your thoughts. I know you said earlier, you're not uh, apt to necessarily get in the weeds on tax law, but uh, this listener writes, so Trump can't be prosecuted for his various possible infractions while president, but how about Ivanka? It seems like her conflicts of interest as executive of the Trump organization and highly paid consultant could be prosecuted. Yeah, you know, I think it will definitely raise congressional scrutiny at a minimum. Uh, you know, they've already indicated in Congress that they would start looking into Ivanka's use of personal email. Um, not much has come out of that. But, you know, I think the fact that she was paid these consulting fees and the fact that he was able to, uh, you know, make claims on those in order to not pay taxes, it, that does raise a number of questions, particularly because the New York Times report only goes up through 2017. We haven't seen what has happened in 2018, 2019, 2020 even. So the fact of the matter is it's going to definitely catch eyes. And it would not surprise me if, you know, she was pulled into these other pre-existing investigations to try to figure out exactly how that all played out. And, you know, whether any there was any sort of overlap uh, with that in her time in the White House. Well, let me just say there were large consulting fees that were paid to her, which may be illegal also. They helped the family tax bill. and It was about $100,000. And she also had some rather huge hair and makeup expenses. But that's another story. Uh, it also turns out that President Trump had indicated that he wanted her to run as his vice presidential candidate. That was recently revealed as well. Thank you both for your expertise. Good to have you with us. Jacqueline Thompson, again, is reporter of the National Law Journal, and Bruce Kane, professor of political science and director of the Bill Lane Center at Stanford. I'm Michael Krasny. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation.